This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek in Ocala, Florida. And I am Christy Landwehr in Aurora, Colorado. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for this Tuesday, November 21st. We are episode 1823. This episode is brought to you by the Certified Horsemanship Association. Good morning, horse world. Houston, we have a problem. Ability equals skill plus knowledge. Bad feeling about this. Here's a safety tip for you from the Certified Horsemanship Association. Missed it by that much. How can I change this to make it better the next time? Help you, I can. Yeah. Time for Training Tuesday on Horses in the Morning with the Certified Horsemanship Association. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show this morning. We're glad you were able to join us. Christy is back. She is here the third Tuesday of every month with the Certified Horsemanship Association. Hi, Christy. Hello, Glenn. It was much more fun having you and Jen face-to-face last month, though. Much more fun. I can't believe it's been a month already, to be honest. (laughs) It's time flies. Oh, my God. It goes so fast. (laughs) Jeez, it seems like we were just in Lexington, but now we're here. Well, and uh, oh. and it was fun to be up there. Thank you for inviting us up and to hang out with you guys for a day or two. Yes, everyone really enjoyed it. We're, we're having a lot more interest now and in people going, well, I want to be part of this. How do I get involved with the show? Wow, this is kind of cool. It's kind of like you put a name to a face and then they're not as afraid. Mm-hmm. You put a microphone in front of them and they're not as afraid, apparently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's your magnetic personality, Glenn. That's what it is. Jennifer didn't. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, but the problem was we were set up in the silent auction room. And I saw Jennifer writing on a lot of pieces of paper. Now, we never got a call, so I assume Jennifer didn't buy anything. (laughs) Must not have. (laughs) Must have been outbid. I guess. And I was so disappointed about that, to be honest. You know, so yeah, I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> Christy's on the phone today. We apologize for that, but we could not get her Skype working before the show. Skype has done updates, which has confused a lot of computers. So uh, we'll get that working before next week. We should mention that Christy's going to be on next Monday for our third annual holiday radiothon. She will be on with us. Uh, what hour are you on? You know, I am on two in the afternoon. That's right. Is it two in the afternoon Eastern time? That's right. Two in the afternoon Eastern yes. time. You have a couple of great guests lined up for us, and we're going to have a lot of fun on the Holiday Radiothon. If you're, it's the first time you're hearing about it, it's 12 hours live. It's the holiday event of the year in the horse world. You want to visit HolidayRadiothon.com. We have 20 different hosts, about 20 different guests. We have hundreds of voicemails and songs and things that were sent in by the listeners, and all 
also, we're going to be taking your calls that day. You can win up to $4,000 in prizes all day long just by calling in. So the phone number is on the website. Uh, it is HolidayRadiothon.com. And uh, we the grand prizes are really good this year, Christy. We have a, a gift pack from Weatherbeta that includes a blanket, a cooler, a parker for your dog, and some travel boots. And then also your choice of any Wintech saddle. Any Wintech saddle. So Ooh. so a winner's going to be right. able to go on the Wintech website and pick any Wintech saddle. So that's a pretty good deal for the grand prizes. That's awesome. Yes, I love my Wintech saddle. Love it. And Jennifer has a couple of them and, and loves hers, too. So, yeah, that's uh, all what can happen. You can win. And you know what? You're not in with thousands of people. You're only in with hundreds of people that have a chance to win the over $4,000 in prizes all day long. So check it out, HolidayRadiothon.com. And tune in in Christie's Hour. It'll also be out in a recorded version immediately yes, after. So. All right. What are we talking? You said you can't believe it's been a month. I can't believe it's been a year since the holiday thon. I know. It goes so fast. (laughs) It does. Yeah, believe me, we're spending 100 hours a day trying to get ready for it. So uh, we we do realize it's it's coming up. Um, Jennifer, what's coming up on today's show? Coming up on today's show, brought to you by Hands-On Gloves, we are going to take a hands-on approach to grooming with Jay Michelson, who has a little bit of something to do with Hands-On Gloves. And then Terry Williams discusses pasture board, whether or not it might be a good option for your horse and other topics. And then rounding things out, Shelly Blockberger weighs in on stalls, arenas, and run-in shelters. Oh, my. And then last but not least, happy National Stuffing Day, everyone. Celebrate this holiday side <laughs> dish, which, dish, which, according to the Horses in the Morning crew, is the most polarizing food at family gatherings. <laughs> no raisins. Ugh. Anyway, um, <laughs> what 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 are we chatting about this morning? You did have your uh, conference. How did it go? Kind of give us a wrap up. Well, yeah, it was good actually. We we had um, just shy of three hundred there over the course of the entire time, and they hailed from thirty four states and four provinces in Canada. So they came from all over. Wow! And so, what what, what was the what were the highlights for you? The highlights for for me is it's over now. I can rest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. We were having a conversation. This is, I've I've put on a lot of them for them now. I think this is the 15th one I put on. But there's something about the 50th. You know, even though you're like, oh, yeah, I can kind of do this. The 50th, you pull out a lot of extra little things. So it was a little bit more to do. But, you know, that doesn't mean that next year's isn't going to be great. Last weekend in September here in Colorado at the Colorado State University, Temple Grandin flying in from Nova Scotia the day before so that she can be our keynoter at our awards banquet. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. Speaking of the awards banquet, so what happened? Who, who won what? So we have this award banquet every year. And for anyone listening, um, you know, if you become a CHA member and become certified with us, then all kinds of excitement can happen. Your school horses can actually be up for an award to be able to be immortalized into a model horse made by Peter Stone, which is so cool, and the Stone Model Horse Company. So he really loves it, Glenn, when uh, we choose an Appaloosa as our winner. Mm. He thinks that's great to create all those spots because he individually does every single marking, every single brand on the horse, every Mm. single everything. 
So can you imagine when we give him an Appaloosa or a paint? He's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. It's a lot of work for him. But, so we had um, a horse named Matthew from Camp Hebron in Pennsylvania win that. 34-year-old horse. Awesome. Uh, we've had uh, Camp Hebron horse. on a couple times. Yes, they yes. are great. Yeah. Susan and Dean Berger. So love them. And then we had uh, Jill Montgomery. She lives out here in Colorado near me. She won our Volunteer of the Year Award. She did a ton with one of our new manuals. And then we had um, our Distinguished Service Award winner is Ward Stutz, and he's he actually created our why statement, um, why you need CHAs, because we change lives through safe experiences with horses. So because of him, we were able to kind of create that tagline and some other things, and he currently works for the American Quarter Horse Association, but was a part of our board for many years and did a lot for us. So a bunch of things like that happen at our award banquet. So it's very fun. You should get involved. Sounds good. And today we're going to be talking, we kind of have a theme going today, don't we? It is kind of a theme. We're talking a little bit about CHA's Equine Facility Manager Program. And everyone listening, you know, whether you have one horse or 50, and whether they're on your property, I mean, if you're bored, then maybe not as much. But certainly if they're on your property, you're a manager. So you're an equine facility manager of your backyard or of a large program if you run one. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what that entails through us. And then also we cite accredit equine facilities for insurance discounts. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well today. So, uh, and you, you, have you owned your own boarding facility in the past? You know, I have not. I've only had horses on my property, and I mean, I might keep a horse here and there for somebody, things like that, but I wouldn't really call it a boarding facility. The most horses we've ever had on the property is four, so pretty small. Yeah, and uh, we, yeah, we had a big facility at one time with uh, 25, 30 horses, and boy, that ha- it has its challenges, especially, you know, especially if you have limited turnout, then it does become a kind of a juggling routine. There's a lot to it, isn't there? Yeah. There's a whole lot to it. Yeah, I no, agree. it's not. It's a, well, not only you're trying to keep the horses happy, you're trying to keep the people happy, and then you're trying to keep the land happy, and that's not easy at times, uh, especially in the winter. You're you know? right, it, and I think that's huge about the land. You're absolutely right about that, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. If you have a stream running through your property, you've got to deal with what you're going to do with a manure disposal. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and it's all things you don't think about uh, a lot of times till you get your first place. And then all of a sudden you're thinking about it. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, you go, oh boy. Yeah, boy. <laughs> a lot to this. This is harder than I thought it would be. Uh, but yeah, that is true, and that's uh, that's what uh, that's what goes into it, though. That's what goes into making sure. Like even here, we have 11 acres with only four horses, but if if rain is is uh, you know not as plentiful, then we have to think about which pastures we're going to put them out in. That one's getting eat down too much, and it just is a constant juggling routine. Yes. And, you know, we here, we're kind of the opposite because, of course, we get all the snow and the ice and the frozen water buckets and all those things that we have to deal with. And mud. And how we kind of manage that. Oh, yeah, and mud because then we have the spring mud. So you go from winter ice and snow to spring mud. So, you know, but everything has its challenges for sure. And there's, I don't think there's one size fits all. You know, I think horses are very adaptable. And I think that as long as they're being given some good quality feed and they have decent shelter, they can pretty much live anywhere. They, they actually do pretty well. Nothing beats trying to clean poop out of frozen snow and ice. Nothing beats 
<laughs> I learned that quickly. You know, I moved here from California, Glenn. So when I first came here, of course, I had those lovely manure forks that are plastic and come in all the great colors purple and orange and oh isn't my manure fork so pretty and the first time I jammed it into a frozen poop pile broke and smithereens I mean just went everywhere and I went all right going to the tax store and getting myself a metal pitchfork <laughs> got it yeah it is tough uh it is tough in the wintertime we don't miss that by the way living in Florida I don't miss that at all no I bet you don't you guys no, can have that one kind of making me a little jealous yeah you guys uh-huh. can have that one well you have uh your first yeah, guest so. is ready Oh, this is so exciting. I am so thrilled to introduce Mr. J. Michelson with Hands-On Gloves. Hands-On Gloves are a revolutionary concept for those of you that haven't heard about them. You soon will. It reaches far beyond traditional curry combs, mint shedding blades and blocks, metal brittle bristle brushes, and any de-shedder on the market. They're wet or dry. It doesn't matter. They won't slip or fall off when providing you and your animals with a more thorough and enjoyable bathing and grooming experience. So Jay is, of course, the founder of the Hands-On Gloves. So we are so thrilled to have you today so that we can chat with you all about this product. Hi, Jay. Hey, thank you guys for having me, and you nailed it. I I don't think there's anything else to talk about. We're good. All right. Thanks, Jay. It's been good to talk to you. Hey, Jay, I have to interrupt here. So at the last last ADA, the American Equestrian Trade Association, I picked up a pair of your gloves. The hands-on gloves. And I love, love, love these things. I use them all the time for my pony, who really doesn't like curry combs. He's not a big curry comb. He he hates curry combs. He's a hackney pony, so he's kind of thin-skinned. And then to add to that, I have a thin-skinned greyhound. So so they both love the gloves. My greyhound especially will stand there all day for... For rubbing. Now, the problem I have is I have one glove at the house for the dog and the other glove at the barn for the horse. Now I got to get another pair so I can actually use we need both. To get you another pair. Okay, yes, good. Yes, yeah. Good. Well, and, and we hear that daily. Um, that, and that's, that's, the, that's the fun part. I even have um, some rescue dogs um, that hate to be groomed, but they love the gloves. And uh, we hear that with horses and dogs. Um, at the first of the year, we were at a big show in Pomona, California. And a lady came through um, that had a zebra, and zebras can be pretty tricky. But this zebra, she couldn't even use a cloth on it. She um, bought a pair, went home that evening, and uh, made a video of her rubbing that zebra down with the gloves. The zebra's relaxed, leaning into her, and she put that video up on our Facebook page. So we uh, we hear that all the time, and uh, it's it's fun to watch and see and experience on your own as well. Well, the other nice part about it is the and what we'll, well, let's kind of explain the glove. Explain it to everybody that is not seeing it right here. Yeah, um, as a kid growing up, um, bathing and grooming horses and dogs, I always wondered why we kept using these curry combs and these mitts that fly off your hand, especially when you get a little soap and water in them. So I just I didn't understand why this wasn't on the market. So um, I went out and said once and for all we're going to go make this product (laughs) i thought it was going to be easy um but it was not easy it took four and a half years to make it but it is essentially a a fitted pair of gloves one on each hand that has um, scrubbing nodules on the fingers and palms so with that now you can get your fingers down in all those tight grooves down legs and places that you can't get with other devices but again it also goes back to a better bonding experience with your horse and dog and cats and other animals because it's just your hands petting, loving them, giving them a great massage. That's that's all they know they're getting is a nice massage while you're getting a, a better grooming experience. 
And you know what else you can use it on, Jay, is the rabbit. I've got a huge um, <laughs> 10 pound American chinchilla dough, and she likes it too. And boy, is she a shedder. She sheds a Very lot. Cool. So it's been great for her as well. Yeah. Really oh, fun. that's awesome. I love a video of that. We've got a lot of um, people that show rabbits that are using the gloves, and uh, they, they love it for that. And yeah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> And then so where are you VR. calling us from today, Jay? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, south of um, Fort Worth, Texas, so Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so can you tell us a little bit more about you and your background and the horses and everything that you have? We'd love to hear a little bit more about all that. Yeah, I, um, I, nothing special. Just growing up with horses, I um, showed that everything from Western Pleasure to reining and, and roping, I was just kind of... Uh, and a little bit of all of it. Just loved horses and, and loved that. And uh, we still have horses and dogs, and uh, we have a little ranch out of Fort Worth. So there will always be a part of our lives. We have a, um, just started having kids. We have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and uh, they love the horses. So we're about to get them back out and start riding and uh, getting the kids going in, in that direction as well. But um, that's another reason why we made the gloves and started this company. We wanted to get back to animals and animal people. So um, that's why we developed this, so we can uh, have fun, have a business we like. <laughs> well, you know, Len and I were just talking about our conference that just happened, and um, you guys were wonderful enough to sponsor a video that we did on safely grooming your horse and how to go around them when yeah. you're grooming safely, which will be out on YouTube probably in January. And it was so funny because the quarter horse that I uh, worked with was part of Midway University's um, herd, and he was, um, oh my gosh, like recently body clipped. And I'm thinking, uh, this is going to be interesting. So I very lightly kind of touched him with the gloves. He's kind of stood there like nothing. I said, all right, he'll, he'll be fine. So we start shooting. And of course, I guess I get more energy when I'm on. So I guess I yes. pushed into him a little bit more, gave him a little bit more of a massage. I got up to where his yep. withers were. And oh my gosh, he put his lip in the air and did the thing <laughs> that we all know when he's trying to groom me back, right? And yes. oh my yes. gosh, he loved that. And I went, oh, I guess it doesn't doesn't matter if they're body clipped either. It still works perfectly. So it was, I, I hope you enjoy it when you see it. It was fun. Very fun response. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. No, and, and getting into the body clipping, um, we do a lot of stuff with um, Wall, and uh, they, they love the gloves, but um, they use the gloves instead of the curry comb before the clip because it gets more dirt and dander off than anything on the market. Um, it gets all the way to the skin, gets that dirt and dander out, and then that helps save the blades. So you're now that makes sense actually. Um, yeah, yeah, not not doling your blades down because you're getting all the dirt and dander out. Um, well, and and the other cool thing about the glove. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you, and, well, I want to warn people if they see them in the store, they're going to pick them up and they're going to feel them. And let me tell you, they feel pokey uh, because the the glove part, the the curry part, is pokey. It's sharp and pokey. Yeah. And and that was my first reaction when I picked them up, too. And you said, well, trust me, this is not going to feel pokey to the horse or the dog. Yeah. And obviously yeah. it doesn't, you know, so, it, I mean, it works great for me. But that is a warning. When you first pick them up, people might put them back down thinking they're too sharp. But one of the Some nice things... do. Yeah. Yeah, but some, some people do, and that actually ended up being the, the perfect combination to actually... Um, get an effective grooming and bathing because you can also bathe with the gloves as, as well. Um, but the, the cool thing about uh, that design is the hair doesn't stick to the gloves, either right. wet or dry. That's what um, I was going to say. Look at the wrist, the hair. 
Yep. And it's Look the only that, glove I've found that does that. All the other gloves, you end up trying to pick the hair out of the glove. Um, which, oh, yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, if you're wearing two of them, is kind of hard. So this one, <laughs> exactly. I just shake my hand and the hair all falls out, whether it's the horse or the dog. That's it. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And also when you're bathing, um, same thing. The hair rinses right out. It doesn't ever load up. And um, yeah, so you're not, not spending hours trying to clean your tool out like other tools. And, uh, right. So, yeah. The other thing I liked about them, Jay, is that they come in a variety of sizes. You know, not all of us have the same hand size. So yes. I like that, too. Yes, and that's and we, we love getting the kiddos involved. So we um, launched this year a junior size for the kiddos. And it goes all the way up to extra large, so um, that's that's what we're about—a nice fitted glove, um, like we said. And uh, we're starting to get a lot of knockoffs, um, so be careful with that because it's a one size fits all. Sometimes you'll get one hand, <laughs> and some of these are so sh- sharp. I put a video out on this um, that they're so sharp they peel a, an apple, and uh, that's that's dangerous. Oh, oh, that's not good. Yeah, these are not animal people. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So. No, they well, don't know. What do they run? This is a good stocking yeah. stuff, or it is Christmas time, right? The, uh, yes, and uh, they are twenty five dollars. Um, so yeah, it's a great stocking stuff for people are buying them um, for presents for all of their animal people in their lives, and uh, they uh, they make a great present. Do they come in colors like it. pink and orange and purple and green? Well, we just have green and black. Okay. Um, we, we started with the black. Everybody really loves the black, but a lot of people wanted the color. So we put a color out there, and then we may end up changing that color. Everybody wants a purple one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of purple so we're, we're going to do a contest and, and see who wins, but I'm, I'm afraid the purple is going to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not pink. That's something, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find them at handsongloves.com. Is that where they go? That's that's it. Um, they're also at Dover, um, Smart Pack, everywhere from Ace Hardware. Um, just picked us up, so we're in all the Ace Hardware stores. Oh, wow, congratulations section. on that. Um, yeah, so, and then I was just on QVC. We did a great show there. Oh, wait a, minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to tell us what that experience is like. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. They, they make you go to a school. Uh, before they even let you on air. And you're sitting in this classroom. I'm just shaking in my boots and going, why am I here? I should just run. <laughs> Nobody will know me. <laughs> and they're telling you why they make you go through school, because some people get up, pass out, hit their head, bleed all over something. Some people sweat. Some people throw up. And I'm sitting there in that little <laughs> cl- classroom going, that's me. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so, we we made it through school, and I don't know why they passed me, but they passed me. I was like, okay. And then we got to our first airing, and uh, again, terrifying. But um, uh, they put me at a time slot when, you know, not a lot of people watch me pass out. Um, but it was 7.30 in the morning. We did great. Uh, we, we didn't have very much product left. So the next time slot was at 3.50 a.m., and I had to get there at 11 that evening to meet with a host, and then I went on last at 3.50, so I had to sit there all night long. Trying to stay awake. <laughs> waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was plenty awake. I was freaked out of my mind. <laughs> Let's just get it over with. And but, it's, no, inti- it's, it's intimidating. We've been to that studio, and it's intimidating because there's catwalks. There's all kinds of stuff at that studio. And, oh, and there's people yeah. everywhere, and they have the countdown clocks showing you how much you've sold, which has to yeah, be nerve-wracking yeah. as hell for you. 
It, it was. It was. And like I said, even, even going through the school, I thought they're not going to pass me and they're not going to take the product. And that's where I was really freaking out. Like, I'm going to screw this up for, for, the, for the gloves. <laughs> but, yeah, but no, we're, we're good, so I'll be Did back. Did you bring a dog in friends. or a horse or a mini or what? Well, I'm I'm trying to let them bring at least a let me bring at least a mini in. They won't let us bring a horse in, but I brought a a Caucasian mountain dog. It was 180 pounds, beautiful oh, wow. dog. Well, that's a pony um, named Bear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, that was kind of like a horse. Um, and then I had that dog and a cat, and then another Aussie. So we'll. Uh, oh, we'll how'd the cat do with the lights and all the stuff all around? Um. It, sort of good <laughs> we had to put it on another stage because the caucasian mountain dog isn't real fond of cats oh and, uh, great so we put the cat on the other stage way away from everything but um yeah you can see that and i i got professionally trained animals because of that environment it is intimidating um but the <laughs> you could see the the cat lady when they got to her she was doing great and then the cat started looking funny you could see the trainer kind of get a little tighter hold on the cat <laughs> Well, not only did your first experience on QVC selling your product, you had animals involved, which always changes the dynamic. It does, yes. <laughs> they say never work with kids. You are and very animals, brave, but... Jay. <laughs> yeah. Very well, brave. Well, now, and the way that works is if you sell a lot of product and they're happy with kind of your experiment day, which is your your uh, your audition yeah. day, they'll have you back, and then you'll sell a ton more product. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll be back on um, first of the year in the in the prime time spots, and then also QVC Europe just picked us up. So oh I'll wow! Over there. Well, congratulations. Well, so. Yeah, that's terrific. That is terrific. Yeah, yeah that, I'm very excited for fun. you. Good. Well, thank you. Good. Well, Jay, it is uh, so good to have you on. Handsongloves.com is where you can find them. Go buy a pair, two or three or four for the holidays. And I assume everything's in stock and ready to go out? It is, yep. We are ready to ship. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Jay. It's good to talk to you, and congratulations on your success. Bye. Talk soon. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'm always so happy that, that we took the tour of uh, QVC up there and you got to see the whole operation. And it does look intimidating because it's pretty dark in there and then all the lights and then the hosts. And, and then they have these great big wall countdown things that show you how much you're selling and you can see them from everywhere. So it's got to be intimidating, especially if you're not selling many, if you're there and you're just waiting. Oh, you know, you <laughs> yeah, it's going <laughs> to suck. <laughs> And oh it, my gosh! Like nobody cares about my product. Exactly. Like, you imagine. Yeah, no, you're sitting you. there and you're dying, and the host is trying to keep it going. And but you know, most of the time, it they have such a screening process that they know they're going to sell. I mean, they they know that when right. they bring a product in, it's going to sell it. It's so funny you talked about the school because I've heard other people talk about going through the school. Uh, but that's kind of neat that he's had so much success and p- picked up an Ace Hardware and things. And this was just something he started by himself. So. Uh, yes, good. I love this. Good for him. That's very okay. well done. Well, uh, Jennifer is going to get our next guest on the line here. Uh, give, give everybody really quick where they can find the Certified Horsemanship Association while we wait. Yes. So anyone who's interested, we the best place is CHA.horse. So instead of .com or .org, it's just .horse. You can also find us on chainstructors.com, and that's either uh, become an instructor yourself, get certified if you already are one, or go ahead and find an instructor near you or an equine facility that you're interested in perhaps taking lessons 
boarding your horse, and so on. So a variety of ways to track us down. All right. And Terry is ready. Great. I'm excited to introduce Miss Terry. Terry is actually our current treasurer, Glenn. She's been on our board of directors for um, many years. She also has been a regional director with us. She has her bachelor's degree in equine science and stable management. She has worked in the equine industry for over 35 years, managing horse programs in year-round YMCA camps. She's been a big um, operator of big boarding barns and also a large thoroughbred breeding farm and training farm. She actually, for 10 years, sent yearlings to the Keeneland sales in Kentucky. So she's done a variety of things. She's now certified with us in not only our standard English Western, but also in our equine facility manager program that we're going to talk about and as a site visitor for us and an overnight pack and trail guide. So a little bit of everything. And she's calling us today from Blanchester, Ohio. Good morning, Terry. How are you? Good morning, Christy. I'm fine. Good. It's so good to have you on the show today with Glenn and I. I'm excited to be here. So tell us a little bit more about Blanchester, Ohio, and how long you've lived there, and some other things about your location. Uh, basically, um, after I left the breeding farm, I went to school for nursing, and I bought my own little five acres of heaven um, between Blanchester and Wilmington, about 10 minutes from Blanchester, which is a really small town. It has like three stoplights in it. And um, 15 minutes from Wilmington, which is a little bit larger, has a small um, small college there. Um, it's mostly it's horse country here. It's mostly farm country. Like out my window, I'm looking at a soybean field that's just been harvested. So it's it's kind of a small rural area, but mostly farming. But it's like I said, it's big horse country. There's a big facility down the road that does shows, you know, national level shows and everything. So it's quarter horses, thoroughbreds, standardbreds, you name it, we got it. Hey Terry, are you are you on a s- are, Terry? Are you on a speakerphone? You're very quiet. So uh, yeah. okay, just be no, sure I'm to not. be sure to speak Sorry, up so we can we can hear you good. Okay. Use your outdoor lesson voice. Uh, okay, uh, can you hear me now? That's better. Yes, thank you. Okay. So what I love is that because of everything you did in the thoroughbred industry, I am sure that you are really going to be great to chat to a little bit about pastures. You know, there's a lot of people, and of course, I grew up in California. There was no such thing um, in Southern California, putting your horse on pasture. So then I moved out here to Colorado, and all of a sudden, I was able to put my horse on pasture, and I immediately thought, oh, my horse is going to die, right? There's just no way. It can't eat grass. You know, this isn't what we do. I don't even know, like, are there worms? I don't even know about any of this. I mean, the whole thing was just kind of terrifying to me. Um, Now, of course, my horses are out on pasture almost 24-7 with a little run-in shelter that they can come into, so I've definitely changed my ways. But if you could tell us a little bit about your experience having horses out on pasture and kind of some more information about that for folks. Okay. Well, I started out in camps first and um, in year-round facilities with the camps, and they range from, you know, 400 acres to 1,100 acres, um, the two main camps that I worked at. So the herds range from, you know, 35 to 58 horses. So um, really, you can't have that many horses installed or, you know, camps don't have the money to pay staff. And, and I'm a strong believer that horses are healthier outside. I mean, my horses are healthier than a lot of my friends' horses that keep their horses at boarding facilities. Because for one thing, you don't have the traffic in and out, too. But just being out in the fresh air, that's what they were meant to do. Um, so in the camps, um, the first camp did have, you know, an indoor arena and we did have boarders. 
but we had most of our herd was outside, and we did what we call the dairy farm method of feeding, that you call them in and they come in in the morning. And then if there, there was horses that needed to be fed more than once, they would be in smaller fields, you know, to more target them so that they could be fed twice a day. And we did, um, at both of the camps I worked at, we fed round bales, and you figure out, you know, your round bales, you figure four to five horses per round bale. And um, basically the second camp, same thing. Um, it had also, it had a big, like we ran our main herd into the, the main barn. Then we had two other barns that were open-sided barns that the horses could have shelter. In the main field, it was mostly the pine trees and natural shelter. So both both facilities did well, and we always fed um, pelleted feed because I think you get more oomph for your buck for pelleted feed and less problems, and older horses tend to digest them better. And I know I've always had people complain about pelleted feed and choking. In all my years, I've never seen a horse choke. So I'm one of the lucky ones. I always say that, and I knock on wood when I say that. So um, the breeding farm, same thing. Um, you have your. We always brought our mares in when it was closer to fulling them out. That we had, you know, four large barns. We had a training barn. Our training barn was set up like how they do on the track that it's open sided, and so that could be a little bit colder barn. The other barns were enclosed, and then we had um, several fields, different sizes that allowed for rotating. Even in the camps, we rotated our fields, too, that we'd keep, you know, one empty and then, you know, let it grow up and then rotate them that way. And um, the most important thing with the fields, too, is mowing. You've got to keep up on your mowing just to keep your, that keeps your grass coming up. And um, anyways, the breeding farm, basically, they would be out. We didn't feed round bales there, um, and we fed, we fed square bales um, that were, like, 800 pounds outside. And at one point, we did the feeders, and I... When I was in college, I worked on a standard bread farm that did the metal feeders, and I never liked them because I never thought the horses could get around them. Like, they did the grain and then the hay in the middle. And towards the end of my time at the breeding farm, my owner kept pushing to get them because down in Kentucky, they were getting the big feeders, the hay feeders. And I was always against them. My vet was against them because he thought we were wasting hay. Well, you waste hay with the feeders, too. And the thing with the feeders is that if you don't pull your hay out, if they don't eat it all and you get all that rain, they can mold. So you got to be very maintenance on that. So I never liked the feeders, and that was towards the end. So, I, I mean, I fought it for, you know, 10 years not getting them, but that's just my personal preference. Um, as far as feeding outside, um, on the breeding farm, I never I never liked creep feeders. At both camps I worked at, we, we did bred horses. We bred quarter horses at both those camps. And I tried creep feeders before, never had much luck with creep feeders. So when I started the breeding farm, we, we fed pelleted food, you know, so... We'd give a pan for the mare, and we'd put a pan on the floor for the baby when it was born, and they'd start eating it at an early age. And then when they went out in the field, they'd have their pan side by side out in the field, and it worked well. I mean, they did well that way. So never had to worry. And if, I always said if the mare got the rest of the food, it's still going to go to the foal anyways through the milk. So that worked well that way. And the feed pans there at the breeding farm, we used the little black pans, you know, at the, at the camps. But at the breeding farm, we cut off the plastic water barrels. We cut off the ends, so we had big, giant feed pans there. And basically, you could drive your tractors into the field, so it was safer. You could feed from the tractor. You just make sure you dumped out the pans if there's, you know, any water in them and stuff. And you can move them around the field so you didn't have it wearing down in one area. Any questions so far? No, that's a really good idea, being resourceful and using, like you said, those larger tubs that way. Yeah. And they're not going to dump and over as easily well. and all of that. Yeah, that's great. Shoot, yeah, good idea. And, and going, so, going back to round bales, there is a lot of management with round bales. That a lot of people feel that they could be unsafe and get moldy hay. I know at the camps, we always stored them on their side, then flipped them up on their sides, and the bad stuff would fall away. And the thing with round bales, 
horses will not eat bad hay as long as they have good hay. So you had to put out more round bales before they ate the bad hay, you know, that was from the mold just sitting outside so that they would never eat the mold and I didn't have a problem with colic. So. Explain so a little bit to people, Terry, about pasture rotation and what exactly, like how long you keep them um, not being used by the horses. How do you do that? Uh, well, basically, it depends on how much land you have and whether you can rotate. Like where I live now, I really can't rotate. I mean, so I'm kind of like my grass ends like usually July this year. We had a longer time that my grass didn't. It made it to like September, and I'm not able to rotate. But rotating is not just not just the grass. It's you know you worry about your parasites. And every place I've worked, we've had really good parasite control. And I think it's just the size of the place. Um, you know, but basically with with the breeding farm and the camps, like the camps, usually we'd have one one field that was empty until it grew up, and then you'd put them in that field and then let another field grow up, and that also cuts down on the worm, you know, the worms because the sun will kill the parasites and stuff, the worms, um, and get them off the land. And as far as worming, we wormed everybody at the same time, and that always worked well. New horses come in, they always got wormed, and they were in isolation for two weeks before they ever got turned out. And it's the same thing, you know, at the breeding facility. Breeding facility, we had more pastures, so I'd have more than one that would be empty at a time, and so we could rotate around. Plus, we had some turnout um, runs, too, that were smaller size that weren't grass. They were just sand that we'd turn out, you know, for day turnouts and for the horses that were in a training barn to keep them less stressed. So, I don't know if you want more on that. I mean, mowing was a big thing. No, I think that's really good. Yeah. Mowing was like all the time at the breeding farm because we actually had really good pastures there. I mean, because it was, you know, it used to be an old alfalfa field and stuff. A lot of the pasture land was, so it was really good pasture. And basically, you know, oh, yeah, they saw that down. purple flower and they went, woohoo! <laughs> the purple flower is their friend. <laughs> yeah, and basically, I mean, you got to get it where it doesn't get too short and it starts getting dirty and worn. And that's the same thing as moving the feed pans. You know, if you didn't move your feed pans and you kept them along the fence or whatever, then you're going to get that all rutted up and stuff. So you always got to move your feed pans around, too. So So let's talk a little bit now about preparing um, a trail for a good horse. So trail access, you know, um, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Obviously, in your camping background, you had a lot of access to trail, and you guys did a lot with that. So talk to people just a little bit about, you know, if they want to go ahead, let's say they have their own property where they can create a trail because it's big enough to do so. Um, what is What are some good ways to make sure that the trail is truly safe for the horses to go? And what are some tips you have for that? Well, first of all, a lot of people that don't realize that aren't involved in year-round camping that both the YMCA camps I filled, that their weekend programs were really big in the off-season, spring and fall, and we'd have 200 to 300 people come in, and you'd run them through your, your trail ride program, so you might do two, 250 trail rides, you know, in a weekend. And so those trails that you usually keep them close, that you'd have them time that they're half hour. But the important thing about trail rides is the width of it. You want it about the width of a vehicle. You want it the height. You want it clear that when you're on horseback that you're not going through branches. You want it where it's not going to um, wash away, so you got to, you know, make it zigzag if you have hills. The first camp I worked at was flat and open, and our ride, our main ride was around the lake. Um, we had longer rides available, you know, for people in lesson programs and for our summer camps. Um, we did pack and trail at both facilities. Um, the second facility I worked at was more rural and more hilly, so we had 
we had rides that we had one that we called the man from snowy river that was straight down which was kind of fun um and it's just you know different levels there and we also still had it where it was timed you know like the half hour ride for our weekend programs um the thing about it is any any facility that you're setting up that you're going to do pack and trail or you know trail rides often you want to have access to your safety vehicles coming in in case you have an accident so that was a big deal was that you had to have a way up there and the second camp was very rural, and there's places that, you know, you could really only get in with the ATV at times. And that's where we did a lot of the pack and trail program that we went out, you know, with our pack horses. And that was mostly in a summer program or with Girl Scouts on the weekends. So, but basically it, it's... And what do you do with, like, water crossings? Like lakes and rivers, and how do you <laughs> determine what's safe? Well, um, we don't. We didn't really have that problem. We have little creeks to cross. So both places I was at, um, if you're going to do water crossings, I think that that's more advanced. So your riders have to be more advanced. Your horses have to be used to it, and you have to know your footing. And you know, there's a lot more thought into that. You know, with safety aspects there. Um, we took our horses into the river at the one camp. You know, just to go swimming, but it was a slow moving river and, and not very you know fast. So water crossings is not a big forte of me because I really didn't have a lot of experience with water crossings that were, you know, more severe. But you really have to know, like, you know, when you watch the old westerns and stuff, you can see they can be pretty dangerous. So, and then the flash floods and stuff, we never had that issue at any of the facilities I've been at. So no experience there. Sorry. No, I think that's fine. It's just, it is true though. You're absolutely right. You have to kind of desensitize the horse to feeling that cold water on them before you get there. Otherwise you're going to spend a whole lot of time at the bank and not a whole lot of time in the water. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They're going to say, no, thank you. So it's great. Yeah. Most horses go willingly that are well broke. I mean, so that's, that's the other thing is your horses being well broke. I mean, a lot of people take their show horses out on trail rides and that's a whole different story than a trail horse. So Yes, well broke to show versus well broke to trail versus well broke to whatever is yeah all very different. And, and that comes into very too, very that, true. You know, with CHA has the trail certification program. Um, the second pro- the second program I worked at was more of a trail riding program. So all our staff all our staff went to CHA, you know, certification for that, and that just made it more safe. Everybody knew what everybody was doing, you know. So it was just a well rounded. Risk free. I mean, when you're running two to three hundred people through on a weekend and you're having very few accidents, you know, over years, I mean, I can think of like, you know, two accidents at that facility and I worked there for eight years. I mean, so that's really good risk management when you look at the numbers. And that's, you know, all due to CHI training you to be more aware of, you know, possible problems before they happen. So just getting that educated eye out there is very important. So. Well, and Terry, that's a great segue because we do have an equine facilities managers program um, that ranges everything from, you know, level one to level four. And I know you're a clinician for it. Can you chat a little bit about that program for our listeners and what that all entails? That is actually one of my favorite programs, I think, just because, you know, in all my life working with horses, I've been in management positions. And one of the hardest things is finding good qualified staff. And I actually attended the the first equine facility management program that we had when we were developing it, and that was when I worked at the breeding farm. And I remember my boss paid for me to go. He, he was a firm believer in it. You know, and even though I had, you know, a bachelor's degree in equine science and management, I just thought it was a good program to go through. And I think it's important because it shows the different levels of workers. Um, 
so that you know what you're getting. Because as someone that's interviewing, I like to tell people the story at the equine facility management that I went through a lot of staff at the at the breeding farm because it's hard work and it's hard to get people that are qualified, especially working with thoroughbreds because they can be a little bit more high strung, especially if they're coming, you know, off the track and stuff. And I remember one time I was interviewing, and my farrier happened to be there, and I was interviewing this guy that had grown up in Toledo, and his dad had had standard breads and was on the racetrack and everything and was talking about all his experience. And there were some holes in what he was saying that just didn't add up. But then the clincher was, he said, that the horses were kept at Toledo Speedway. And my farrier said, well, he sounds really good. And I said, yeah, only problem is Toledo Speedway is an auto racetrack. So basically, he was just blowing smoke the whole time. And, you know, if it would have been my farrier or if I wouldn't have known that Toledo Speedway was an auto racetrack, probably would have got hired, you know. But with That's the hilarious. I know. I know. It was really funny at the time because, I mean, I grew up in the Toledo area. And this guy didn't know that, you know. So he figured he was saying something that I wouldn't know. And, um, and you get people that bluff that way. You get people that come in that have the backyard pony or grandpa had the pony growing up, and they think they can handle, you know, a thoroughbred. You know, and it's, it's, a, it's a lot different, it's, you know, and then babies and everything. And, you know, they didn't handle my stallions that usually, you know, whoever was handling stallions was restricted to more experienced people. But, you know, you're handling yearling thoroughbreds. They, they can be a handful. But with the equine facility management program, it starts with, you know, evaluating someone as a stable worker, the next person's a stable management manager, then a herd manager, and then an equine facility manager. And the equine facility manager has to have the knowledge with the taxes and workman's comp rules and all that stuff. And so there's a little bit more knowledge there. And going through the program, you don't, the ones that get the equine facility management are actually out there doing the big facilities. And they find that, you know, it's a good program to go through. It gives them more validation, you know, with, with their organizations and stuff. Um, I've had a lot of luck where I've been doing the equine facility management in colleges. And I've been doing one at Hooten College for about the last six, seven years. And they have integrated GHA's equine facility management program into their curriculum such that when I've gone there in the last few years, the, the people, the kids really own the program. They'll come out as stable workers all the way up to the herd management level. Um, and they just really know what they're doing, and it's things that you never think of. And I just did another program at Ohio University Southern Branch, and it was their first time doing an equine facility management clinic. And two of their instructors went through it, and then a couple of their students, and then some outside people. And basically, after the first day, the instructors come up and said, we just realized we had some holes in our program. And this is going to help us fix our whole by, you know, introducing your curriculum into our curriculum. So it's a really good program. So I'm really fond of that. And I think it's really the setting, the best setting for it is in the colleges because it just gives those kids a little bit more experience. Because even when I graduated from college, your first question is, what's your experience? And so that gives you a little bit more concrete knowledge that you come out with a certification saying, yeah, this is where I stand in the industry you know, coming out of the college. So I've been evaluated outside of the college, not just in the college, if that makes sense. So I really and Carrie, can program. you explain to our listeners a little bit of information about what they can expect when they go? Like, how does the process work? Um, it, it's, it's a little different than our standard program. And I know that, that our standard program has more immediate feedback. 
Um, basically, you're being evaluated on what you know when you come in. So the first thing is, the first step is a written test, which kind of targets your knowledge at every level. That's, you know, important information you need to know. And the healthcare varies from level to level because the more you get, you know, up the levels, the healthcare knowledge is going to have to be more extreme because you're, you're, ba- you're basically the person calling the shots at the upper levels. At the lower levels, you're just implementing it. But, you know, every level you have to be able to identify that the horse is injured or sick and when to call the vet. And then it just goes from there up the levels. So the first thing they come in is they take the stable worker test. And once they pass that test, they have to have an 80% and they have to go out. Then they do a skill that we assign them a skill from that level and they perform the skill. And everybody else watches. And being that it is a clinic, it is a learning experience. So some people might have some other suggestions for them, but it moves really quickly because it's only a a two-and-a-half-day program. So we have to run them through real quickly. And then after they do their skill, then they come back in after everybody's gone through the first level of skills. We take the second test, and then they pass that test, then they get to move into those skills. If they don't pass that test, they continue taking, doing, presenting skills at the first level. And it just goes up the levels until you go through the fourth level. And I know the last clinic I did with that, that we did have um, two people come out at the fourth level. So, I mean, obviously one of them was the college professor and another one was an outside person that came in. So you do get the upper workers. But mostly, you you know, you see in that program, you see level twos and level threes, which is a stable manager and a herd manager. So it's very very fast-paced. The test can be stressful, I mean, because it's a lot of information. And it's some of the stuff, it's things that you don't think about, you know, and then it gets you thinking about them. And we always like to answer our tests, like grade them as a group so you can present questions. And, of course, there's arguments over because you perceive questions different ways. But it's, it's not only a certification program, you also gain a lot of knowledge from the other people that are there. So, I mean, where else can you go with just horse people and just learn with just horse people? So, yeah, it's so much fun. I, I I went through the program and really enjoyed it, too. So. Well, Terry, thank you so much for being on today and kind of explaining a little bit about what you've all done and some um, information about the different options for people and then, of course, about our equine facility manager program. How do people find out more about you if they want to contact you with any questions that they might have? Um, basically, I'm listed on the website once as a board member and then also as a certified you know, clinician instructor. So I'm in the web-based twice with CHI. So you can just look me up there, Terry Williams. That'd be great, Terry. Well, thank you so much. And for those listening, if you want to find out more about our EFM program, same thing, just go to cha.horse, go to um, types of clinics, and you'll find even more information. But, Terry, we so appreciate you being on today and sharing with us. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. A lot more to think about than you thought, huh? Well, and I'll tell you, Glenn, this is kind of cool. You you guys should think about it. You and Jen, I mean, you've done all this. Your equine facility manager won. Two weeks ago at the Phoenix Zoo in um, Arizona, we had our driving clinic. See, you could have been a certified driver. Many, many (laughs) things to think about. You did that at the zoo? We did. The Phoenix Zoo is pretty awesome. They have a huge horsemanship program where they've actually hosted our standard English Western. They've also hosted our equine facility manager, and now they've hosted driving clinics. They're a pretty unique zoo. Pretty awesome. That is pretty unique. (laughs) All right, let's do this. Let's take a break for a song, and then we're going to come back with our next guest. And I thought to get everybody ready for Radiothon, I'll play it for the first time this year, a little Templeton Thompson. So we'll be right back after this. 
let your heart be light from now on, our troubles will be out of sight have yourself a merry little Christmas make the Yuletide gay from now on our troubles will be miles away and here we golden days of yours Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more Through the years we all will be together If the fates allow Hang a shining star upon the highest pile And have yourself
That's Templeton Thompson. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. You can find all of her music at templetonthompson.com. She has a lot of Christmas songs over there. You can also find them on iTunes and buy them there for 99 cents. So head on over and check out Templeton Thompson. Little programming note for this week. We are going to we are going to have a show for you tomorrow. Jamie will be back. It'll be our last show before Radiothon. So that's our last show before next Monday, which is Holiday Radiothon at Holiday Radiothon. Com, which will be 12 hours live. So I know you're going to miss us Thursday and Friday, but it is a holiday here in the United States, and uh, we'll be getting prepared for for our 12 hours. So that is what's coming up uh, uh, over the next week here on Horses in the Morning. Uh, Jennifer's having trouble uh, locating your next guest, so while she's doing that, uh, what do you guys do for the holidays? Do you stay home? You have th- You have three boys? Yeah, we have 12. If you include the husband... For <laughs> you four? Yes, I have three boys. Absolutely. No, I have two um, actual children. They are 11 and 13. Yes, both boys. And actually, my parents were just out this past weekend from Southern California because my boys were in Jungle Book. And it was really awesome the play, to watch them in Jungle that play Book? because yeah, okay. the play Jungle Book, and for those that have not seen the movie, um, and for those that have, there's a scene where Mowgli the man cub, which would be basically the main character in the play, um, he was my older son, and then my younger son was Shere Khan the tiger, who's basically the evil nemesis of Mowgli. So at the end, it's just the two of them on stage, and they're having like this literal battle scene where it's all blocked accordingly and there's rolls and falls and pushes and shoves and screaming and yelling. And I went, wow, this is like a day in my living room (laughs) at my house. So they really didn't have to act a whole lot. It was just. (laughs) No, it was so funny because their their teacher was like, I'm going to always make sure siblings do these parts. This is really good. It's very easy to get the inner anger. This is not a problem. made us laugh. Were you a proud they mama? They did a great job. Talk about memorizing. Oh my gosh, Glenn, they had so much to memorize. You know, they just did a great job. But this week, um, we actually have a which, which is, that has Well, which is, wait a minute, Dale, which is why, by the way, I did improv, yeah. because I could not memorize lines. So all those years <laughs> doing theater, that's why we did improv, because I just could not memorize lines. They, I, I just couldn't get them right. I could oh. never get them right. That's why you do radio. That's right. You can be improv on the radio too. That's right. If I had to memorize lines, like I can never remember the words to songs or things like that. It is an art to do that, to to be able to do that. Unbelievable. And I'll tell you, it's really interesting having two sons that can do it because I'll like start singing a song and they'll go, no, mom, that's wrong. And then they tell me the words. I'm like, you're right. I'm wrong. Well, I'm glad that there's little budding theater majors in the, in the works. Oh, they're cracking me up. Yeah, they're already now preparing for the musical, so now we're singing songs because, you know, they do a play in the fall, musical in the spring. Yay! Good. Very exciting around here. Never dull. Good. Never, never dull. Jennifer, we haven't had any luck uh, locating the guest, have we? I can't hear you. I think you're on mute. We have not. We have not located your guest. Oh, Shelly is missing in action, is she? Yes, she is missing in action. So, um, 
that is not good. I wonder what's going on with that. Well, well you know, I can certainly answer her questions. I can ask them myself, see, and then go ahead and answer them. Do you want me to ask but you her questions? Do you want me to ask you her questions? Sure. All right. Sure. Let's absolutely. chat about different problem. types of boarding options for horses. <laughs> what is your experience with putting <laughs> horses in stalls, and what are some things that are beneficial about this type of housing? See, I just asked. Okay, you're kind of, I don't know, Glenn. I don't know. It just doesn't sound right coming the other way around. I don't know about this. <laughs> well, you know. Well, I, I will. Well, while we're trying to hunt her down, though, we can certainly talk a little bit more about one of the important things she was going to talk about. So we can, we can start that process. It's up okay. to you. Sounds good to me. All right. So one of the things that Terry mentioned that I think is really important to the listeners is in regards to our um, equine facility manager program. And though what we were going to talk about with Shelly is something a little bit different for those of you that have not necessarily just in your backyard, but maybe full-blown facilities where you have um, borders um, It might be in your backyard where you actually have, you know, people come in to take lessons and things like that. We have what's called our CHA site accreditation process. And we have never, after we've site accredited an equine facility, received less than 10% on insurance discounts. So for those listening, if you're like, why would I want to go through that? It's voluntary. It's for insurance discounts. And actually, we had a lady up in Canada receive 50% off of her insurance when she did it. So it went in half. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it worked out pretty, pretty good. And what we do, we have um, our standards for equestrian programs that we send to you before you get site accredited. And you basically get the answers before you take the test. So in the back of that book, there's a chart. And it says, this is everything that people need to see before they come out to site accredit you. You bring in two site visitors from your local area. They come out. And if you have your binder done ahead of time, that's kind of the key, Glenn. It's things like your boarding contracts your liability release forms, um, all of those, your farrier logs, your veterinarian logs, your TAC logs. And if you have all that paperwork kind of ahead of time, that really helps the process. And then the walking around and actually seeing your facility, seeing your TAC room, seeing your feed room, that doesn't take very long at all. So it is a really good program um, for those that are interested in insurance discounts. And then, of course, you can hang our signage and then also be listed on our website once you go through the process and host clinics for us and a variety of different things. So it is a useful program for those of you that either are staffed at a location that might want to do this or have your own location. Very good. It helps quite a bit. And anyone listening to, you can become a site visitor for us. Um, they're all 1099 contracted employees. So if anybody wants to be a site visitor, it's a nice way for us um, horse professionals to make some money on the side. And we do site visitor trainings at our international conferences. We'll have one this year, the end of September, um, and we'll actually be accrediting the Colorado State University Equine Sciences Program. So that'll be good for those of you that are interested in maybe becoming a site visitor, wanting to learn more about it. That's the place to come and do that. Is that kind of like a secret chopper? A little bit. Except you're not a secret. You no, come in no, and they're, okay. they're well aware that you're there. Okay. But a little bit. I mean, it could be, right? <laughs> we could do it sneakily. But we don't. We do it very overtly. Okay. <laughs> We're here. We're here. 
And, and, you know, I think that's important. And, and especially if you're running any kind of a larger operation, because the insurance can be a killer. So even a discount on the insurance is well worth it. Plus, just being able to say you have it. I think you're absolutely right about that. That is truly the key is being able to say, yep, this is what we have going on. This is what you know, we've, we've gone through, I guess, a third-party entity to show that we're going to take good care of your horses if it's a boarding barn, right? right? We've gone through a third-party entity to show that we're feeding good feed, that we have good housing, that we are doing what we're supposed to do to make sure that everyone's going to be safe, people and horses. So I think that that's nice, too. Instead of just hanging a shingle and saying, yep, I'm really good at this, and this is what I'm going to do, you're actually bringing in an outside entity that doesn't have any skin in the game that's going to say, yeah, they really are doing a good job. Now, if people are looking at uh, change, if people are looking at changing barns, if they're looking at going to a new boarding facility, which our listeners are always looking at doing, uh, is there a list on the website? Where can I go to find the certified ones? There is. If you go to um, chainstructors.com and you put in your abbreviation for your state in the search bar or miles you want to drive from your zip code, you can do it either way. All the facilities that come up, if you click on the hyperlink, you can see how long they've been accredited for. um, And if they've put um, information about their facility, you can see if they're primarily a raining barn, a dressage barn, a trail operation barn, you know what they do primarily, if they will indeed board your horse if they have lesson horses that you can go and ride on, a bunch of different things. All right, very good. Anything else before we wrap up today? Well, yeah, I just wanted to, I do want to go over a few of the questions, Glenn, that we were going to talk to Shelly about, because, you know, it's not all just about pasture boarding, like Terry talked about. And, you know, Terry's um, take on it was that horses and stalls sometimes are not as healthy, that you really need to have them outside and things like that. But in quite, Honesty, you know, we know that you can also keep horses in stalls very successfully as long as they do have good turnout, whether that's you riding them or they actually have a run-in shelter um, outside attached to their stall. But the biggest thing I think about anything indoors, whether it's an indoor arena or an indoor stall or whatever the case may be, is ventilation. I don't know about you, Glenn, but I'll tell you, here in Colorado, when we have an indoor arena and it's freezing cold outside and the arena's not heated, so they want to keep all the doors closed, you go walking into that indoor arena that has all the horse stalls attached to it and the ammonia smell Mm -hmm. from the urine Mm -hmm. just knocks you over. So, you know, having correct ventilation to be able to make sure that that doesn't happen. Don't you agree, Jen? That is so important. Yeah. The, The ammonia thing... I cannot overstress. You got to remember too that your horse's nose is an average of about three feet closer to the ammonia source than yours is. And I read somewhere, I don't remember where anymore, um, after experiencing a particularly um, rank barn, I did a little bit of research on ammonia odors. And if the ammonia is strong enough for you to actually smell it, it is way, way, way past what OSHA considers safe air to breathe for a human being. Uh-huh. It's, it's, that, it's that toxic. So it doesn't just smell bad. It's actually causing damage to you, your employees, and your horses, and your clients' horses. So the whole, yes, ventilate, but also use appropriate bedding, use appropriate stall um, deodorizing products, whatever you need to do 
to get rid of the ammonia because people, I think people really, really underestimate how much damage over the long term that they can do to themselves or their horses with that. I would agree 100%. And I'll tell you, you know, here in Colorado, we have a lot of indoor facilities because, of course, people want to ride year-round. So in some locations, like where you are, maybe not as many, but, boy, that can really get you. And then the other thing I think that's huge about it is when you're setting up things um, for your horses, such as arenas. You know, we talked a little bit with Terry about trail, but it is amazing how much dirt costs. Shocking how much dirt costs. Yes. (laughs) But you really have to have a good base. You got it. But I'll tell you, the type of arena footing that you need is different indoors than outdoors because outdoors is going to blow away. Indoors, you don't have that problem. I mean, so you really have to think about what is my footing going to be like? What is my dust control going to be like? It's not just ammonia smell inside. It's also dust, which also causes a lot of OSHA problems yeah. and then when for you combine the two, and yourself. Yeah. When you combine the dust and the ammonia. So first you're sucking in ammonia and causing inflammation and damage to the horse's uh, sinuses and or bronchial tubes or the end of people and then you add to it dust that is just choco block full of bacteria and germs and fungi and Absolutely. mold hello sorry soapbox so that combination <laughs> no it's so true so i'll tell you you know i only have an outdoor arena gym but I'll, i am a stickler the minute manure hits the ground the pitchfork is out because I paid more for that dirt than I did for the panels that go around the arena, which I call my fencing. I mean, it's crazy how much dirt costs. And we're all always in there dragging it and doing those types of things. We don't have to water a whole lot because we get a lot of um, kind of overnight dew, which kind of settles in enough. And because it's outdoors, you know, a little bit of dust isn't as bad. But, boy, there is art to footing. And they make great books. There's arena footing books that are really well done. Um, that can kind of help those of you that are thinking about building, you know, an arena. Mm-hmm. And then I want to talk a little bit too about round pens. Um, you know, round pens come in a variety of sizes, 30, 30, 50, 60 feet. But really a 60 foot round pen is going to be your best friend in my opinion, because you can walk trot and canter in it. So you can walk jog and lope in it. It's not going to be yeah, too small and hard on your horse's joints. You got it. And you can also, of course, start a horse in something of that size, too. It's not too big. So a 60-foot round pen is your friend. Um, if for those of you that are looking to put a round pen up and you kind of need to know what size. And then, you know, arena sizes, I mean, there's everything from gigantic ones where they're doing roping and all kinds of things. But if you have a smaller property, you're just thinking, ah, what is the minimum I can get away with where we can still canter? We kind of look at 100 by 150 is going to probably be kind of the smallest. Then you still can have a little bit of a dressage court type rectangle in there where you can do Western work as well as English work. And you might even be able to put a couple of jumps in a size like that. Um, but, you know, obviously a little bit bigger is fine if you're going to put up a quite a few jumps. But the problem is if you make your arena too big, then if you are teaching beginners to ride, that beginner gets away from you really easily. It's not as secure yeah. to be able to teach, <laughs> you know, people that are just learning. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, football right. size right. arena may yeah. not be the best. Yes. Yeah, a small, a smaller enclosure can be beneficial with the, with the up downers. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep them closer to us so that we can actually move the horse's body, right? We can get behind them to tell the horse to go forward, and they think, wow, I'm making the horse move, and they're really not, right? We are. 
or we yeah. can get in front yeah. of the horse's well, yeah, motion and stop them. Yeah. And they go, oh, look, we stopped the horse. Yeah, no, you didn't really. I oh, did, really but you don't that. need to know that, right? Yeah. The, yeah, the school horses are totally, they totally get it. It's like, oh, we're in the small pen today. Got to pay attention to the riding instructor. They get it. <laughs> yes. And they go a lot slower. So just again, you know, for those that are listening and want that education and knowledge, you know, you can certainly go on our website. You can call me up personally. My contact information is all over there and chat a little bit more with us about any of these kinds of issues. I think the hardest thing I know for me when I first bought this, we had 10 perfectly flat rectangular acres and nothing on it but a cottonwood tree. And I went, okay, now what? I, wow. So, you know, talking to a lot of professionals, finding out information through CHA and other associations to kind of say, because you don't want to build your arena twice. You don't want to build your paddocks twice. If you can really do it just one time, it'll save you a lot of money. So hopefully you can kind of figure out dimensions and things and get to that a little bit quicker so you don't have to do it more than once. And it's it's surprising uh, there are a sort of different companies in around that their job is to put in arenas and supply arena footing and install it, et cetera, et cetera. Even if you're not going really high end, those guys can be very, very helpful. So don't hesitate to call in Absolutely. a professional company. And if nothing else, get advice. They can, they can also help you think of things like, Oh, I never thought of that aspect. For example, how heavily is your, arena going to get used? What type of weather do you have? What type of maintenance time do you have? You might have the fanciest footing in the world, but if you don't have time and the machinery to maintain it properly, not much point in buying that type of be- that type of footing. So to get that big picture, it's, it's a nice idea to, to somebody who does it for a living, even if it's going to be a DIY project in the long term, that can be so educational. Without a doubt. And I'll tell you, with ours, we had a footing. Um, it wasn't so much the footing. It was more the drainage issue to lose my footing. I didn't want all my footing leaving my arena and ending up outside of it. So we had to really build up the arena to, because it was in a little bit of a low spot on my property. In retrospect, hindsight is always twenty twenty. probably would have put that arena not in that location because of all the dirt I had to bring in to build it up. But now when we have weather of any kind, whether it's snow melt, as we were talking about earlier with the mud season, or whether it's actual rain, my arena does not flood because it's so much higher now than the rest of my property. It just drains right off. So that was truly a benefit. Yeah. yeah. I was doing an interview with uh, a, a company that installs arenas. That's what they do. And we did a series of them all about arenas. I'll have to dig them out of Horse Tip Daily sometime. And, he, and I asked him, what is the single most important thing and the biggest mistake people make when they, when they start out putting in their arena. And he said that it's site preparation, making sure that um, it's the, the ground um, drains the way it should, whether it's off yes. the sides or down through and keep making sure that the ground is level. Now level is different than flat. Yeah. I think people get confused there. Flat means it doesn't have any undulations uh, from point A to point B. Level means you can put a level on it and the bubble stays in the middle. You can have undulations in the middle of your arena and oftentimes not cause yourself a lot of trouble providing you have good drainage. But if it is not level, as you alluded to earlier, all of your footing, whenever it rains, drains out of the side. <laughs> 
And it really it will make you cry. It'll, It'll make, make you, you cry. cry. Yes. Because again, <laughs> we pay so much cry. money for dirt. <laughs> yes. Well, there you go. So very true. This is, this is well, a, thank you. It's a very passionate topic for both of us, obviously. <laughs> Well, and it's important, you know, because I'll tell you, so many people, bless their hearts, they think, well, I bought the land, now what? And there really is so much yes. to it. Um, so just, again, one aspect is we do have our standards for equestrian programs, and in it it has program standards, uh, management standards, and site standards. And the site talks about not only footing, but also a marina fence height, depending on what discipline you're doing. You obviously need really tall fences if you're doing jumpers because you don't want the horse to mistake the arena wall for a fence. Um, so obviously, you know, and obviously in dressage, they're a lot lower. So you can certainly kind of you know, look at what you're doing with your arena and the types of fencing and how to put it up. A lot of different information in that for those that are interested. And it's only a $40 book. So it's a very inexpensive investment into building your own equine facility in your backyard for those that are interested in that. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who said, gee, where was that when I built mine? But it's also useful even if you're not building from scratch. If you are somewhere, you've been there for 15 years already and you're thinking about things that need updating or improved, or you're moving into a property that has existing facilities, it's a great reference to go, oh, this is, this is a good way to improve that or change something else or leave that alone just the way it is. Very true, because you're right. Sometimes you're going to walk in and go, boy, I wouldn't have done it that way, but I wonder if this is going to be, first of all, safe for my horses, and second of all, effective for what I'm doing with this property, and you can certainly find out that way. Because, again, tearing something down and rebuilding, well, if you don't have to, that's lovely. And how nice to come into something that's already kind of planned out for you and has a method to its madness and has everything always set up. I'll tell you the next most expensive thing after footing, fencing. Oh, my gosh, fencing and cross-fencing and all what type of fencing and what's going to work the best for my horses because even in a pasture – your horse is going to, unless it's a bubble wrapped horse, find a way to get nicks and dings and scrapes and what have you. It's fascinating to it's me good, how they yeah, want to, in yeah. a 10-acre pasture, roll by the fence. Why do you want to roll by the fence yeah. in a 10-acre pasture? <laughs> and fencing, like so many other things, is very, very regional. What is common in one part yeah. of the country might be hardly ever used in another part of the country. And it's always good to understand why. Because you go to some place where everybody seems to have... Um, Electric fence. Why does everybody have electric fence here? What the heck? I want board fencing because board fencing is awesome and it's safe and it's beautiful. Well, it might be important to understand what it takes to install wooden fencing, uh, what weather conditions it holds up well in and what weather conditions it doesn't, um, what type of soil you have. And again, this reference manual, as well as checking with uh, local sources, that's key because if you put the wrong kind of fence in, you're going to be paying for it for the next 25 years. That is 100% correct. And I'll tell you the other thing too, that's a big deal is if you're, let's say in Montana and you've got pastures that are huge, like sections of land, we actually originally had in our (laughs) standards manual, absolutely no barbed wire. And then we changed that to put highly recommend, strongly recommend, not barbed wire. But I'll tell you, when you're fencing sections of land, guess what the cheapest fencing is? It's barbed wire. 
So, yes, per square mile. So you're going to certainly probably end up using some of that or even your smooth wire fencing, which without an electric fence can be a little bit dangerous with T-posts and smooth wire because your horses can get hung up in that. So, yes, absolutely knowing what is in your area and what makes the most sense and the maintenance of it. We have a lot of that plastic fencing out here that's really beautiful. You know, it's white. It looks really good. Well, it freezes out here. Yes, yeah. it looks like a board, but it's made of plastic. But the problem is in the winter, mm. the horse kicks it and it shatters into a million pieces because it's frozen. Mm. Yeah. We have that here, too. So you people have to really, put the, you know, people put that up here, too. And the problem here is it gets molded to death. It so gets green. so moldy and green <laughs> that it looks awful. Oh yes. yeah. See, we don't grow mold here, so I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, fascinating to me. Yeah, it looks it looks terrible. That's why most of the fence you see around here is wood. By the way, all fencing is a nightmare for horse husbands. I'm just saying. I don't care what it is. It's just a nightmare for horse husbands. <laughs> My husband would agree with you 100. <laughs> I don't care on if it's that. electric. Yeah. I don't care if it's wood. <laughs> I don't care what it is. It needs fixed all the time, and it's a nightmare for horse husbands. Just saying. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Well, Christy, thank you so much for putting this show together again. And uh, we'll be back here tomorrow morning, obviously, with Horses in the Morning, one last show here before the holiday. Uh, Where can everybody find the Certified Horsemanship Association again? Yes, find us at CHA.horse or CHAinstructors with an S on the end.com would be the best. And of course, there's all kinds of stuff on there and books and things too for holiday gifts. You can find them on there. It's there a shop are. section, right? And, and also find us on Facebook. We're CHA Instructors on Facebook, and you can like us on there, and we can certainly share information on there with any of you as well. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Christy, for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow on Horses in the Morning. Thank you, everybody.